We're in our imprecatory psalms. We only have one more psalm after this one, and we were in this, we ended it last week, but we didn't really end it, because I said that I would like to um, continue on a little bit more on Psalm 139, at least the theme of it, because I didn't cover everything I had uh, prepared for for last week, but uh, talking about the topic of hate and the idea of, uh, in this psalm, it particularly talks about Uh, The psalmist says, I hate those that hate you, Lord. And is there ever a time to hate, and is there a time where hate can be a holy kind of hate? And I think we kind of summed that up a little bit last week by just saying that really, truly, the only one that can truly, I guess, hate with a holy hate is God. Uh, I think we fall short in that, and there's always a temptation to allow hate to turn into vengeance. And that's the kind of stuff. But nevertheless, the Bible has very strong language. And sometimes I like to kind of skip over those texts, but I don't think it's always good to skip over them. And one of the things I've learned, and I was just talking to Sandy tonight about this, is that when I've gone through these psalms, the imprecatory psalms, uh, it's been the first time I've ever done a series on those songs in particular. And uh, secondly, I have not out there ever really heard sermons in that realm. They're, they're out there, but I, in my camp of people that I've sat under, uh, they haven't dealt with a lot of those psalms, portions of them, but in particular the imprecatory parts, I haven't heard much. And maybe I wasn't listening. I don't know. That happens too. But uh, nothing stood out in my memory on those things. And I, it's been a blessing for me, personally, just to go through these, because in the midst of the psalmists uh, declaring, uh, you know, or asking and praying for God to judge the, his enemies, um, it also points us back to ourself in the light of a holy God and what God is really like. We discover that God is a God of mercy and justice and a God that truly is holy. He hates sin. And ultimately, he will have the last word. And that's part of that. And we live in a world that is furthermore, I think, every in our country especially, um, becoming more godless in their worldview. doesn't mean God is less, right? But people regard him less. I had read of a young woman who went off to college, a young lady, first person that she met on the college campus was an atheist, and the person looked at her and said, I don't believe in God, and if there is a God, I'm it. And so that was her first encounter there. Her first class at this college, it was in Texas, um, uh, she sat in this first class, and the first thing the professor said when he opened up the class was, the notion of God is overrated, and I don't want to hear it in this class. So I thought that was interesting. He laid the ground rules for the class. And the problem with that is this, as we go further from the Lord and God, sin just to balance and ultimately it's not for our good as a nation or a people uh, the bible says that um, sin is a reproach to any people and that's one of the things that i think we've gotten away from in our in our worldview in our theology that should be practiced and uh, people are going further away from it and that's why we're regarding sin um, as something that is good, you know, and so often. Anyways, the Psalms have really opened that up, and I wanted to continue a little bit further in this Psalm on the last part, which was God judges righteously, verses 19 to 24. And we did go down through all those verses last week, but 
I want to look at um, this idea of hate and God's hatred for sin. And does he, uh, does he hate people, I guess, would be a question. Because that's a question people ask. And what does the Bible say about that? Well, we're going to read these verses and then we'll continue again tonight. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, we just come to this passage again thankful lord for these words and we pray that we would interpret uh, the scriptures correctly you would teach us and give us the mind of christ tonight in jesus name we pray amen the question is does god hate and that's a good question and more specifically uh, i remember reading a long time ago about searches on google and one of the i think it was like the number three search in the realm of coupled with the name God, was, does God hate me? And I thought, wow, that's quite, that means that when people are searching the word God, that like number three on that list is that phrase. And that was a while back. I don't know if that's still the same. But that's a question that people have, enough so that they're Googling it out there, and they're wondering. And, and of course, when life kind of goes bad, sometimes people ask that. Does God hate me? Or does God hate in general? And I think the first thing, and I left this off last, or I left off there last time, was talking about the very fact that God is the one who has a perfect kind of hatred. Not only can he perfectly hate, but he can perfectly love at the very same time and still be God. And for people, that's we can't even get our mind wrapped around that. And yet he can do that because he's perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. His mercy can be extended and his justice and judgment at the same time. And in perfect, um, in, in perfection, I guess would be the word, you know, because he's able to do that. We fall short in that. And the Bible warns us about attitudes that would, for Christians in particular, um, attitudes that would regard uh, a, a vengeance on our part. And those kind of things. And we've looked at that as we've gone through those psalms. And that's the backdrop of that. But I want to say that because sometimes we think that God is sort of, or people think that God is an impersonal God. Now I know, hopefully here at this church, and as you've grown in your faith, you know very much that God is a very personal God. He cares for us at the heart level. He cares, us, cares for us in the most intimate part of us. And God is a God who has emotion. And he can love, and he also can hate. And the Bible, he can be grieved, uh, all kinds of different things. Uh, and, and by the way, you come to the New Testament, and we see Jesus with emotion. Uh, we've, been, we've been watching that series on Amazon, whatever, The Chosen or whatever, and watch through that. And there's a lot of sanctified imagination with it, but it, what I like about it is it's sort of based on you know, the gospel records, then it adds a bunch of extra things to it or just kind of make things more human and, well, not only human, but, you know, just a backstory. And it may not be right or anything like that. It's, it's something that cre- kind of creative thinking. But one of the things that you see in that little series is the emotional part of the people in Christ's day. And again, 
I would just be caution you that don't get all your theology from it necessarily or, or, or say that this is all from the scriptures. It isn't, but it isn't bad necessarily either. It's just it, sometimes we paint this sterile picture of people in the Bible, including the Lord. And you ever wonder, did Jesus laugh? Yes, I believe he laughed. And did, did he ever uh, uh, you know, get angry? Yes, we know he got angry in scripture in that. There were times where his heart was grieved. There was times where he was filled with anger. And there was times that he loved beyond anything that we could love or experience. In Mark's gospel, we see the account where there's a man in the synagogue and he He's possessed. It says, Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? Let's paraphrase that and say, God, do you hate us? <laughs> okay. Now these are demons speaking, and I would just say they have no hope of redemption. But they've taken control of this man. And they make a bold statement. I like this. It says, I know, or the man does, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And I would just say this, that even a possessed man, in this case, knew the character of the one he was addressing. Then he, that's Jesus, said, do not draw near this place. Oh, excuse me, that isn't, that's from Moses's, uh, from Exodus. I was thinking, wait a minute, that's not it. We read in that passage of Mark that it says, um, we know you are the Holy One of God. And anyways, that's in that, that section. That, like I said, they, uh, there's this idea of God's holiness. And wrapped up in his holiness is also the fact that he cannot tolerate sin. And I'm just looking at the emotional part of that. Back to Exodus here. Moses' day, same thing. When Moses approaches the burning bush, and realizes it's not just a burning bush, but rather uh, God, uh, who is veiled in fire. Uh, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. That's what the voice told him. And he has a true uh, God encounter. And it regard, in regard to that, it brought out the aspect of holiness in God's character in that. And it's Mark 3 that I was looking at here, because I have a few more references on that. Again, the synagogue. It's funny how many times Jesus went to the synagogue and it was there that God was going to drive home some points. And sometimes, as we even talked about this morning, the people in the synagogue weren't doing so good, were they? Their hearts weren't really there. Here's an indication of that. And he entered the synagogue again and, the man, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they watched him closely. Who's that? Well, those in the synagogue and the scribes and the Pharisees are there whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And I thought of that, like this morning we were talking about how sometimes people get upset at something good that God has done and that anger toward the Lord. In this case, they're just waiting for Jesus to heal somebody. Imagine that. Wow, that's what he's going to do. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. The answer is this, that it's always good to do good, even on the Sabbath. And when he had looked around at them with anger, 
Jesus was angry. His heart was filled with anger and being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Have you ever thought about that? That that God is sometimes angry with our attitudes and our hardness of our hearts? Yes, he can be that way. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. The Lord has emotion. And the Lord Jesus, when he was here on earth, he represented that same emotion and character as the Lord, right? We find that he was grieved. Back in Genesis chapter 6, remember, it says that the Lord was grieved or sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Only someone with a heart that can experience emotion can be grieved and only a person can be grieved. The Lord is very personal. Luke 19.41, we have the same account of Jesus, the Son. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Why was he weeping? Well, he was weeping because not only did he know what was going to take place in that city uh, in just a few really days from that time, but also he was weeping over the hardness of their heart. The same ones that some of the same ones that would be crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, would also be crying, crucify him, crucify him at the end of that week. Jesus wept over that. And it's possible that the Father is grieved, the Son is grieved, and of course the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, also can be grieved, right? Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And again, only a person can be, have that kind of emotion. And we see the person of the Lord in the sense of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, adjusting to God's attitude, we read in that Psalm 139, and we talked about this last week, so I'm not going to get into it too far. He calls for, or he makes the statement about his hatred for those that hate God, those that took the Lord's name in vain and blasphemed him. Um, And then he ends in that psalm saying, Lord, um, look at me, right? See if there's any wicked way in me. Cleanse me, O God. And I think that's that part of when we truly understand the holiness and the character of God. For us, it's hard to pray for vengeance from God to be put on the enemy without first looking at ourselves and saying, Lord, where do I fall short and doing that? Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. It's pretty strong of the Lord, isn't it? How about Psalm 45.7, The love, or you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. That's a messianic psalm. Psalm 97, verse 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. And I would just say that that's every aspect of evil. We should hate it. He preserves the soul of the saints, or souls of his saints, and he delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Amos, chapter 5, verse 14. Look at what Amos says. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, 
Establish justice in the gate. I think that is a, a tremendous calling for, the, for every one of us. We ought to be hating evil and loving that which is good and make sure that we're judicial in all our dealings. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So what does God hate? And as I would just say that we ought to be seeking justice and we ought to be uh, uh, looking you know, in that way, but there are several occasions in Scripture where the Lord names things that he hates. And may I just say this, that from God's perspective, we often say he loves the sinner but hates the sin, and, and that is true. Because remember, he can perfectly love but also perfectly hate at the same time. For the sinner who is not, has not repented and come to faith, they, are, they abide under the wrath of God. That's what the Bible says. John chapter 3 says that. The wrath of God abides, present tense, on those who will not believe. And that's that understanding of you have the justice of God and the holiness of God and the hatred that he has for sin, but you also have the focus of that in a perfect way i hope you're following me on this on the sinner who abides under his wrath now lest people would accuse me of saying well you only believe in a god that hates and he's full of wrath and all that i would say you have to again study out the whole context not only is he holy and just and he has to be because he wouldn't be good if he wasn't he also can love at the same time uh, but don't neglect the two. Both are part of the perfections of God. And I would just say this, that it's not loving if someone had no concern for evil. For instance, a police officer that would just sit there on their, in their cruiser and they'd watch some crime unfold in front of them and they say, oh, that's okay. Someone just got assaulted, we'll just forget it. I don't care. I mean, maybe there's some that do that. Most wouldn't. But you would say, that person doesn't care for people. Or he doesn't care for victims in that case. And really he's not a very good person who was supposed to be an instrument of justice for at least the civil order. And according to the book of Romans, also God's instrument. And, you know, you'd think about that. You know, we often talk about those kind of aspects. It would be wrong if we uh, did not seek justice for wrong and evil. God is the one who perfectly does that. Anyways, wrath. And we'll talk a little more about that because there's, I believe, the, the love of God and the hatred for sin and the wrath of God is found in a climactic event at Calvary. And even preceding that at Golgotha in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, or I should say at Golgotha, but also before that at the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about what God hates. Proverbs 6.12 says, A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. Um, Sometimes when Solomon writes here, and again he's writing under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he says a worthless person. God looks at someone who has a perverse mouth, and that is a reflection of the heart, because what comes out of the mouth came out of the heart first, right? But he says they're worthless. That's not, not good. 
He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Boy, sounds like some of our leaders. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly he shall be broken without remedy. And then he goes on to say, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And he talks about these things that he hates. Look what it says, a proud look. A proud look. That isn't, that's, that's looking out and saying, look what I have done, right? And not giving the glory to God. An unthankful attitude. Romans chapter 1 talks about that in that um, progression away from God, a devolution as they go away from God. And one of the things he says after all those sins that are listed, and neither were they thankful. And I think an unthankful spirit, an unthankful heart, is a character of really what's going on and it's coupled with a proud look a lying tongue god still wants honest people and he wants honest lips honest tongues oh how we need that someone can look you in the eye and they tell you something and it's the truth right i hope that you are like that i think many of you are but we need to do that how about hands that shed innocent blood in that Psalm 139, a couple of weeks ago there, we looked at the uh, previous section to the one we read tonight about um, really that we often quote about life in the womb, right? He knit us together in the womb. And when you go and decide to terminate a life in the womb, that's innocent blood. Or like this nurse in england i read in the paper there recently where she's thought to have killed i don't know something somewhere around nine infants that were in in like the neonatal unit over a period of a couple three years she did that um and was caught nobody even really knows her motives why she did that but she killed innocent life or how about those that would just go out and seek to destroy you know, I think of last month in, was it Memphis, a young lady who went out for a jog and a guy grabbed her and uh, assaulted her and, and killed her, threw her body behind an abandoned house. And a few days later, they found her. And, and I just thought, why would a guy do that? Because he shed innocent blood in that sense. God hates that. How about this? A heart that devises wicked plans. Do you think there's people out there tonight thinking about the next great way to trap you in some wicked plan? Yeah, you bet. There's all kinds of stuff. There are people that are gathering in boardrooms and there's people gathering in the dark corners of some alley and they are doing the same thing. They are devising evil plans to capture people because Satan is at work in their lives. How about this? Feet that are swift in running to evil. Sometimes people's feet get them in trouble. Oh, right? Little eyes, be careful what you see, right? Oh, little feet, be careful where you go. The little song says, right? How about this? A false witness who speaks lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Lots of false witnesses out there. And they're probably on social media tweeting about it. And they just, you know, 
Slander is the word that is used. And one who sows discord among the brethren. That, that's closer to home, isn't it? That's within the house of God. That sort of implies that anyways. And there are people that like to do that. Hey, did you know so-and-so did that? Or they, and what should be our reaction when people come like that? And I say this, hey, look, if that's true, you need to talk to them first. But that isn't their intention. They don't want to correct it. They just want everybody to know it. That's sowing discord. God hates it. Solomon goes on to say, My son, keep your father's command. And do not forsake the law of your mother. Do what's right. Do what's good. Does God hate? Psalmist says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And I would just say this. If truly you come along and you hate what God hates and you hate those that God hates and you do so with his attitude, you could do that. I think it's hard. I say that just as a a man that would say, I want to seek vengeance. When I hear stories like um, that man who went and grabbed that young lady and and assaulted her and killed her, I say, man, I'd like to have about five minutes alone with that guy. But vengeance isn't mine. It's God's. And whether human courts will find him guilty and punish him to the extent they should, I don't rely on that because it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes it does. Sometimes people you know, are given the full weight of the law only to a couple years later walk away from things because of some technicality. But they won't get away from God. And they need to throw themselves at his mercy. Can I just say this? The things that God hates, he hates with a perfect hatred. And the things God loves, he loves with a perfect love. And there are times in the word of God where there seems to be these these paradoxes of statements that come and they would be truly paradoxical if god could not do both those things and he could not somehow even through the evil that people commit and do work out his greater plan and i'm not always comfortable with that because well first of all i'm not god i couldn't fix things like that but god can and often when i come to deuteronomy 23 i always find this Part of it's in the law. And God writes here through Moses, he says, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Wow. If you were an Ammonite or a Moabite, you're in trouble. How come? Well, it says, Because they did not meet you when with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from uh, Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, or the imprecatory part. They were cursing you, right? Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loves you. God can take the curses of man and turn them into blessings. And you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Now, if you were someone who's going to keep the law, 
you're never ever going to let a Moabite or an Ammonite come up into the congregation of Israel. And yet, we have the book of Ruth. Why? You know, did God get it wrong? Did God's people get it wrong? And I just say this, that where God is a God that is, first of all, he can change things if he wants to change things. And the very fact that he didn't always enforce the law against the descendants of Ammon and Moab, right, is a blessing because we have Jesus Christ in the lineage of Ruth the Moabitess, right? She's one of the great-grandmothers of Jesus and a grandmother to David. And I, I think about that, and I think, wow, Lord, you're, you're amazing that you do that. So although when you read through Scripture and you see that God hates, and even in nationalities it talks about that, um, countries like Esau I have hated, right, or Jacob I have loved, that's repeated again. And was that the individual Jacob and the individual Esau? Um, no, but it was the nations that came out of them. And that's how he displays his action to that. God hates, but he also loves. Psalm 41.9 Even my own familiar friend whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Um, I like that we looked at that as one of the imprecatory psalms uh, early in our study. And we have to have the long view. He says, and set me before your face forever. My problem here is I get kind of depressed when I think about the now, right? You say, oh, this didn't go my way, or that didn't go our way, or this is happening, and that's happening. It just is depressing. But if we remember that we have the long view, and we are going to sit before the face of God forever, and our enemies won't triumph over us. Evil won't triumph in the end. It might win right now, or it seems to, but it won't. He's the one. And I think we need to have that kind of attitude as well. What does the Bible say about these things? And I, I say this because there's always a temptation to hate sin that leads to hating people, that leads to vengeance, which isn't ours. And that's a constant temptation. If you don't believe it, just you don't know history right because it happens all the time it happens in nations that should know better and it happened in the history of israel it happened in men like david's life david was not allowed to build the temple of god because he was a bloody man he had killed a lot of people and god didn't like that god didn't delight in it at all though he calls david a man after his own heart but he wasn't perfect and we are to be reminded of that Jesus put it this way, Matthew 5, 43, right? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's quoting there from Leviticus and also uh, later quoting from uh, uh, Deuteronomy in that as well. But he says this, but I say to you, love your enemies 
Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I have a hard time with that verse. I do. Because I just go up and like to punch him in the face sometimes, right? Or worse. But Jesus says, no, that's not what you're to do. You're representing me. Aren't you glad that he didn't come and just punch us in the face when we were at enmity with God? Or slay us, which we deserve, and we deserve nothing but hell. But in mercy and grace, he extended his love toward us. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy, and then abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. You see the balance? That's the balance the Christian should have. We ought to love one another without hypocrisy. There's enough of that in the world, right? And we ought to hate what's evil and cling to what's good. That same passage, a little further on, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. In other words, let wrath have its place. It's not yours. It's God's. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you know, I still believe that's possible. Ultimately, the Lord is the one who overcomes evil with good. And I think the person of Jesus Christ, as we see that uh, in his life, we see really the perfect union of Jesus became the instrument by where he would show, the, demonstrate the love of God, but he was also demonstrate what the wrath of God looks like. By the way, only God could take the wrath of God and survive. Nobody else could. God the Son experienced the full wrath of God when he was at the cross and sin was placed upon him. We have from Mark's account in Mark 15 verse 34, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course it's also a quote from Psalm 22, the very opening verse of that psalm, which is a messianic psalm. And, but he is making a statement of fact. As Jesus is dying, he, I believe at that very moment, the wrath of God was being poured upon him. And he experiences the aloneness of that moment. And yet, why was he doing it? Because he loved perfectly also. He experienced all the hate and evil things, but he also experienced the most really the, the love, the love of his, not only of the eternal Godhead, but of his love for others. And as I said, in um, another place that that is seen is when Jesus was praying in the garden. You see the aspect of what he was about to partake, which was the wrath of God, the cup, but also the fact that um, he was going to intercede in it was in Matthew's account where you see Jesus interceding for himself. He intercedes for his disciples and he intercedes for all believers. Good thing Jesus is interceding because this world wouldn't be here, all right, if he didn't. But in Luke's gospel, in the context of this, right after they, they get ready to go out and he's going to go into the garden 
And I thought about this because I want you to look at verse 36 here because we often look at the garden experience just after this, but really this is all connected. Then he said to them, that's his disciples, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. What was Jesus advocating here? He was advocating a preparedness in a world that's evil. Make sure you have some money. Make sure you have a little knapsack, you know. In other words, you've got to have to carry some things. And he says, if you don't have a sword, get one. Wow. Why do you need a sword? Because the world's an evil place. And guess what? There's people that want to do you harm or others harm. And it's a good thing there's good people out there that still take up the sword, so to speak. Because if you didn't have them, evil would reign. And Jesus doesn't tell them not to take a sword. Instead, he tells them to take a sword. And he goes on to say, For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Now he's also talking to Israel specifically there as well. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. In other words, you know, be prepared and make sure that you, you know, in this case, you are prepared to stand against evil as you can, but, but that's not your primary focus. In other words, don't go and just start stocking up on swords or whatever else, right? Um, in that sense, because, because it is an aspect of trust and faith and reliance on God in an evil world. I think on one hand, you have the preparedness of a person and a disciple, but on the other hand, you have the trust and reliance on God. And if you didn't have those two things, you wouldn't go out in this world. Then it says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. So this has just taken place. Now he goes into the Mount of Olives. And as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And he came to the place, and he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I've often wondered, what is that temptation? Is it in general, or is it specific? Is it something, like, I, I can write myself in there and say, All right, what tempts me? And I could say, help me pray lord so that i don't fall fall into those temptations but for these disciples think of the context the context is their leader is about to be brought before a false court and several false courts and then be crucified and and they're grieving over that because he's just told them that's what's going to happen and the temptation would be to take those swords and go out and enact vengeance we know that because Peter does it <laughs> in the garden. When they come to arrest Jesus, he tries to kill a guy, I think. Cuts the guy's ear off, right? And um, there's a temptation to seek vengeance when it's not our place. And he said, or and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. What cup is that? The cup of the wrath of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthened him. And being in agony, and the word agony means great distress. Um, it has also the context of fear. And it wasn't a fear that led to sin, but a fear of impending death. And they often talk about that in, you know, signs of like cardiac problems, stuff like that. Impending death is one of those signs that you look for. If someone believes they are about to die, there's probably a reason for that, Okay. Jesus experienced that knowing he was going to die and he knew his impending death was coming. 
And he took all that. Not only that, but he took the wrath of God. That's the bigger part. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Of course, he's under great stress. And when he arose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. There it is again. And I think, my friends, there was a temptation. I I may be wrong on this because it doesn't say what the temptation was. But in the context, the temptation would have been to try to institute the kingdom of God now and do it by sword. And it, it wasn't the time. And it isn't the place of his followers, his disciples, to just take up the sword and try to bring in the kingdom of God. The church erred in history when it did that. And all it did is bring wars and disputes and all kinds of corruption and everything else that came. Give place to wrath, as Paul said. In other words, give it its rightful place. And that's with the Lord. The Lord is the one who can perfectly hate, but he also perfectly loves at the same time. And it's good to know him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful. And Lord, as you record for us in your word, the psalmist said, search me, O God, and, and know my heart, and try me, and know my anxieties, my worries. O Lord, help us to be such people that would come before you and first see that. And Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, and Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Help my eyes to be fixed in the right place tonight. And I pray that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Wow.